And Father, we thank you for this day that we can remember um, the, our, our fathers, um, that each of us exists because we had a father, and uh, many of us have been blessed, extremely blessed because of the fathers we've had, others of us have maybe had uh, not the fathers that we would have liked or, or the father that aligned with with your word, but regardless, uh, you have given that person, and, and maybe that person's not even with us anymore, Lord, and some of us also are fathers, and um, for for those of us who are fathers, we just pray that you would help us to, to emulate, to exemplify um, who you are to our children in their lives, uh, God, because you are the, the perfect father, um, there, you have no flaws, no faults, no imperfections, and you've given us this, this, the families and this structure as a picture of, of who you are, and we praise you, and we just pray that we could uh, show you to our, to their kids, and whether the kids are, are little or whether they're grown, other that there would be good relationships between the fathers and the sons and daughters, uh, amongst us and that you would heal any brokenness through Jesus. And um, we just thank you for this chance to, to remember and to maybe celebrate. And we thank you for that you being a father were willing to give your son the infinite love that you had for your son and yet you were willing to allow him to be beaten and unjustly tormented and to die. And, uh, and he gave, Jesus gave up his life willingly for, for us sinners. And we thank you so much for your great love that despite who we were, you were willing to sacrifice your son for us. Amen. Amen. In Jesus' name. As Nate prayed, happy Father's Day to everybody. This morning we want to Take a look at uh, the beginning of chapter 10. We left off last week actually completing chapter 9. In fact, I'll give you a little reminder of what we looked at last time. And as we've been uh, saying all along, and chapter 10 begins and gives us that one of the little notes that you can find in the book of Romans that indicate that Paul is writing to a believing audience. Even though he deals with the unbeliever in the beginning part of the book of Romans, the, the letter is not written to unbelievers, it's written to believers. In the city of Rome, and there were many churches, as we've said, some of them house churches, probably in a smaller group than what we've got here, composed of both Jew and Gentile, and that's kind of the stress throughout in his introductory summary, you might say, in chapter 1, verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. So there was a, a Jewish component to the church at Rome, and also to the Greek, verse 16 ends. So there were Gentiles or non-Jewish believers as well. So when chapter 10 begins, it begins with brethren. He's writing to believers. Now, chapters 9 through 11, he's dealing with the issue of the Jews, even though it's written to the brethren, which would be both. And he uh, refers to them in chapter 10 as them. 
referring to the Jews that uh, he referred to it at the end of chapter 9. And throughout the book, we see that he's talking to Jewish people. Sometimes he'll switch to somewhat of a Gentile inclination or to the non-Jewish element. The readers would understand. And then in like chapter 2, he says, Therefore you are without excuse. And if you read the context, referring to the Jewish audience, Every man of you who passes judgment for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, goes on and condemns the Jewish people. Chapter 2, verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God, another reference to the Jewish contingent, then once he concludes this condemnation section in uh, chapter 3, he also refers to the fact that all stand condemned, including Jew and Gentile. And I'm looking at 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. And when we come to chapter 10 through 11, this whole section is directed to uh, the Jewish contingent. Not just directed to them, but the Gentile as well, so they can understand what God is doing in this time frame that we call the church age. And it would have been especially pertinent in the first century, but it is pertinent today because there is still within the church kind of a a wrong perspective concerning the nation of Israel. And uh, there's a large contingent to the church that holds what's called replacement theology. We've been stressing that particularly when we introduced this section. The idea that the church has been or has the focus of God, and it is the focus, but it has not replaced all of the covenants, has not replaced the promises that God has to the nation of Israel, And Paul is going to deal with that in chapters 9 through 11. So we've been looking, and we completed last time, chapter 9, 1 through 29, where he's going to explain that God, in setting Israel aside, he's vindicating the righteousness of God. God is perfectly righteous in doing that. And he traces all the way back to Abraham that uh, God has been selective, even within the nation, Even within the descendants of Abraham, God has elected some, chose some for particular purposes. So the emphasis is the sovereign choice of God. And we just started last time, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 9. He's continuing the argument from the past to the present. There's a present situation, the present rejection of Israel. Israel is presently under discipline. The church has not replaced Israel because because Israel still has a future, and that's the main area of chapter 11. A future restoration, and Paul uses the word salvation. We're going to talk a little bit about that word today, and I'm going to expand it a little bit further when we get to a key passage later on in chapter 10. But there's a future salvation, future restoration of the nation. So this raises a lot of issues, this section or subdivision, chapters 9 through 11. The issue of Israel is God's chosen people. What's the status? Has that changed? Has God uh, set them aside such that they're no longer the chosen people? 
And I think we emphasized at the beginning of chapter 9, he emphasizes the privileges of Israel. He's emphasized them before. You can see a little hint of that in chapter 10. God still has Israel as his chosen people, although they're under discipline. And he's already explained that only a few within Israel actually are sons of the promise the early part of chapter 9. So God has always been selective. He's always had an electing purpose. We might use that phrase. And what about now the gospel going out to the Gentiles? This sounds un-Jewish, unbiblical. Israel is supposed to be the focus. And now in the first century, what are all these Gentiles doing, coming, responding to this man named Jesus Christ? So he's got to explain the gospel going to the Gentiles. And he starts that in verse 24, where we have the first mention of the Gentiles. So Gentiles coming to God apart from law, that just doesn't seem biblical as well. In chapter 9, Paul vindicates the righteousness of God. But beginning in chapter 9, verse 30 through 32, we have responsibility, kind of the alternative to sovereign election, two doctrines of Scripture. In fact, the emphasis of Scripture is, in fact, man's responsibility. There's only, in comparison, a few passages that stress the sovereign election. And the reason for that is because we need to know that doctrine We need to know that God is sovereign and that God has a plan. And part of that plan is a a concept of choosing and electing. So we have a few passages that emphasize that and talk about that. Chapter 9 is one of them. But because we need to respond to God's plan and to God, the majority of the passages deal with human responsibility. And that's why sometimes we get confused and minimize the sovereign choice and sometimes overemphasize the aspect of man's responsibility. But we have both, and we need to believe both, and we need to hold to both, and we can't minimize either one, otherwise we are out of balance. We talked a little bit about that last time. So we're looking at the vindication of God's righteousness, God's past sovereign election of Israel, chapter 9, 1 through 29. And now we have a new portion, the present. So I'm going to divide chapters 9 through 11 into three parts, past, present, and future. And we have a past sovereign election of Israel, chapter 9, 1 through 29. But now we're going to focus on the present And we've been looking at the idea of Israel nationally, corporately, ethnically, present national rejection of the nation of Israel, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter 10. Now, when they remember the breakdown of the verses and chapters in the Bible, those are not inspired In fact, they came much later in church history to help us find and identify where we can locate certain passages. So they're not inspired. And they didn't ask my opinion, but uh, I think logically it better would uh, fall out with, I would uh, locate the breakdown after verse 29 of chapter 9 and include 930 and 33 with the next chapter. But... Like I said, they didn't ask, nor did they care what I thought. So, so 9.30 through 10.13, I've broken this part into two parts. 
And I slightly changed a little bit of wording. I keep working and keep uh, alliterating and doing that sort of thing. So I changed the word from the outline last time. Instead of Israel's failure, their perversion in attaining righteousness. They have a perverted view of not only God and God's righteousness, but a perverted view in terms of how to access that righteousness. We'll talk some more about that today. So 9.30 through 10.13, we looked at their pursuit, and in the pursuit, they stumbled over the essence of how you attain to righteousness. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, chapter 9, verse 30 through 33, kind of a sub-paragraph in there. And why did they uh, stumble over the stone? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. In other words, they did not pursue righteousness, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. And if you were Jewish, you would be familiar with the Isaiah passage, and he combines probably two passages, Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And uh, that comes from uh, chapter 8, and we talked a little bit about that being messianic. And I use the imagery of many limestone stones all over Israel. And you remember this scene from 2017, those that were actually visited the site both times, but the photograph is from 2017, stones that make up most of the structures, most of the buildings, and in this case, the Pool of Siloam. And by the way, this would have been a ritual bath that would prepare the visitors to Jerusalem on a feast day. And then they would proceed probably from the Pool of Siloam, and they've uncovered, and we've looked at some of that recent archaeology, the path of the pilgrims to the Temple Mount. So they would be going up the hill to Temple Mount to uh, worship and along the way, the whole pathway would be composed of these stones. So a very familiar image, but a particular stone, a messianic stone, is also a stone of stumbling. Now, the Isaiah passage also speaks of the stone as the chief cornerstone. It should be at the bottom. Uh, here you have some cornerstones that date back to the first century. Herodian stones with a characteristic border around them. Huge stones. These would be at least 20 feet in length. You don't have a perspective there. The stairs there might give you a little bit of perspective. But common image, and we looked at the end of verse 33, he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So we have kind of two responses to Messiah. Some will stumble over him, some will trip, some will be offended, he will be offensive to them, he will be different than what they anticipated, what they expected, he will not come in on a white horse and deliver the nation of Israel from the Roman Empire, he will not be victorious, he will have humility, he will come on a donkey, He will uh, contradict the leaders. He will, in fact, even embarrass them on some occasions in their lack of understanding. And he will be offensive. Now, there's a principle here. 
all unbelievers, I think, start off with stumbling over Messiah. They want to come up, as we'll see in the passage today, with a means of attaining righteousness that involves their own human efforts. That's a human tendency, and certainly it was present amongst the Jewish people. And whenever you have that, you try, and the Bible calls that self-righteousness. Whenever we try to attain righteousness by our own efforts, that would be self-righteousness. That leads to a prideful attitude, and one that we were, were looking up so high, our nose is so much in the air that we stumble over the stumbling block. And when we see the block, it is offensive, causes offense. And this is true of the unbeliever in general as as well. But in this context, it speaks of Israel. Isaiah is speaking. So you have two groups. You have some that are offended. So when you present the gospel, don't be surprised that people will re- react to you. And since you're presenting the gospel, they will direct their offense at you. But in reality, realize that the offense ultimately is not really you. The offense is really Jesus Christ himself and the gospel of free grace. So that's one group. There'll be others and probably a minority and probably few. And some of you have experienced leading somebody to Christ. Some of you have uh, seen just a few as you witness to many And he who believes in him will not be disappointed because they will realize the issue at stake in terms of salvation. So that was last week where the focus beginning to answer the question concerning why God has set Israel aside. Partly it is in the plan of God. It's predicted. It's by God's sovereign election that he has chosen some and passed over others. But also, beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, Israel themselves are responsible for their own choices, their own volition, so they are responsible. And uh, we came up with the principle that uh, human responsibility calls for a response. And in this case, there was a failure in the pursuit of righteousness. And I'll use the same background slide to uh, give us some of these principles relating to human responsibility through chapters 9 through 10 and uh, the first one is in the passage we looked at last time. So beginning in the new passage chapter 10 beginning in verse 1 and I think we have the probably the explanation why the the scholars chose chapter 10 verse 1 to break up the chapters instead of chapter 9 verse 30. Because it starts very similar to what we have in chapter 9, verse 1. You remember in chapter 9, verse 1, Paul is agonizing. Paul is grieving. He's extremely sorrowful. And in chapter 9, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing grief in my heart. You might say ultimate sorrow. Why? For I could wish that I myself were accursed. If there were any way that Paul could be the substitute for the nation of Israel, he would willingly sacrifice himself. We looked at all of that when we were at the beginning of chapter 9. 
cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren. Now, in this context, he's speaking ethnically. He's speaking in terms of fellow Jewish people because of the context. So we see the agony of Paul. And in Romans 10, we have that similar idea in terms of the beginning of the chapter. So he has a prayer, uh, the prayer of Paul for Israel. And this is an intense prayer when we get to it. And again, I've already emphasized, and we won't spend too much time, but there's a balance here beginning, I think, with chapter 9, verse 30, in terms of God's sovereign election. I won't go over all of this. The stress in chapter 9 is God. That's the focus and the emphasis, God's purposes. We looked at some of these verses last time. But then beginning in chapter 9, verse 30, and continuing in chapter 10 to the end, we have human responsibility. We emphasize this in that Israel is the focus, as it always has been, but now he identifies actually calling Israel out by name. In these passages here, we looked at some of them. We have also the emphasis of response and a response of faith or belief. The verb or the noun is used 13 times in uh, this passage in chapter 9, verse 30 through the end of chapter, actually, I think through verse 13. And outside of 9 through 11, we only have one more passage in chapter 11, verse 20, that has either the verb or the noun for response, for faith. So we have an emphasis here on human responsibility. We have the nouns located. We looked at a couple of those verses, and we have the verbs uh, several times in uh, in this passage. So the emphasis on human responsibility. So he begins, brethren. Now, who is he referring to here? From the context, is he referring to the Jews or is he referring to the Gentiles? I think he's referring to the Gentiles, the believers, because he's talking about his desire for them, the Jews. Very good. Good observation. And it would include both Jew and Gentile, but he identifies them as brethren. So he's separating out some Jews. And from the context, we've already seen that he's done that. Throughout chapter 9, there's been a separation that uh, not every Jewish person is necessarily the chosen or the elect. Not every single Jewish person responded to the gospel message, even in the first century. So I think it includes both. In other words, this is a broad statement to the audience, and he's going to identify who he is praying for. And we have that in the next portion. My heart's desire, and in fact, that word for desire is is a is a strong word. It's it's a word that is often used of of God's desire, God's uh, counsel, God's will. The word that is used there oftentimes is associated with the plan of God and what God has set forth. So this is a, a, a strong or heartfelt desire, my heart's desire or strong desire, as he notes it here. And not only that, but my prayer to God for them. And in the context, the them, the immediate context, uh, goes back to the passage we looked at last time when it speaks of they stumbling over the stumbling block. And the they there goes back 
Israel that uh, rejected the Messiah. So these are, the prayer is for his fellow unbelieving Jews, much like the beginning of chapter 9, great heartfelt desire, heartfelt prayer even, for those that uh, have not responded. And uh, the interesting thing here, he doesn't use, he uses a particular word for prayer here. It's not the usual kind of a general prayer that kind of includes all categories of prayer, petition, supplication, praise, you know, all of the aspects. He uses a particular prayer here. This is a, a prayer of supplication, you might say. You could even use it in a context of begging. In other words, my begging to God. In other words, it's, it's heartfelt. It, it's a devoted prayer. This word is used, for example, when it describes in Luke chapter 2, when it speaks of Anna. Remember the godly Jewish woman, Anna and Zacharias, in uh, Luke chapter 2, where she's serving the Lord day and night. And what is she doing with what? Does anyone remember? Two things. This is intense, daily, ongoing prayer of Anna. Remember the two components there? Anyone remember? Fasting and you might even translate it petition or supplication. I think that's how New American Standard translates it. So this is a particular prayer. This is requests. This is even uh, pleading with God for his brethren. And I think we have an insight here in terms of a couple of things that we can apply. One, I think in our culture, you may know of Jewish people. You may, and all of us know unbelievers, but I think more specifically, we should not forget God's people. We should not forget the Jewish people, those that have that relationship to Abraham. But we have to not only have a concern for them, a heart desire but it has to be followed by specific prayer. There's the human aspect, the human responsibility. And yes, God has chosen, God has sovereignly elected, and I believe on even an individual basis. We've uh, discussed a little bit of uh, the possibilities there. Personally, I, I see that doctrine as applicable in terms of individuality in eternity past, but... I think the Bible also cautions us that because of the sovereignty of God, we are not to just rest and say, well, God's choosing some and he's passing over others. My prayers are not going to matter. Well, that was not Paul's attitude. There's also the aspect of God uses probably as his instrumentality, the bringing of individuals to himself, those I think he has chosen But he uses not only the gospel message, but the prayers of those that are brethren, those that are believers, those that, uh, in fact, have a heart for those that are lost. We don't know who those are, who God has chosen, but we can pray because that's what Paul did. And that's what Paul encourages us. That's what the New Testament, in fact, the whole Bible encourages us to pray for do not have a relation. So here's the human aspect. Here's the human responsibility. And it is our responsibility to share the gospel. It is our responsibility to pray. And I think we need to do both. And the prayer precedes the presenting of the gospel. And we have a 
classic example of Paul here. My heart's desire and it's heartfelt. And I believe, I think Paul prayed because he knew God would answer. This is not just kind of a whimsical, hoping, wishing prayer. But I think it's a prayer where God anticipated that Paul's prayer would be answered. And in the next chapter, in fact, that's the whole purpose of chapters 9 through 11, to encourage the believer to share with the uh, Jewish people because there is a remnant amongst them. We saw that concept, uh, chapter 9, 30-33. A remnant of Jewish people that will respond. And then chapter 11, there's going to be a respond in an ultimate sense, even after the church age, during the tribulation, when all of Israel shall be saved. So the prayer of Paul, I think uh, Paul anticipated that God would uh, uh, answer that prayer. Now it says his prayer is for their salvation. And uh, we have the, the noun form here, soteria. And what have I said before about this word? Does anyone remember? In order to understand, and in fact, I'm going to ask uh, Nate what his view is on uh, the usage of the word soteria and sozo in the book of Romans. Um, remember, there t- there's two different words. We talked about justification and what that means. In fact, we're going to talk some more about it. Now, I don't want to spend too much time here. I'd like to get through the passage. In fact, I'm going to devote some time to this when we get to verses 9 and 10, because I think it's helpful to understand it in that context. Anyone remember, first of all, what did I say about the word uh, salvation in the book of Romans? Go ahead, Janie. Did he uh, have a right standing with God or very righteous? Well, that's justification. That's justification. That's a different word. Justification. In fact, that is very, very common in the book of Romans. And when Paul uses the word dikaios or the word righteousness that we already looked at and we'll look at again, he has this concept of righteousness and being declared righteous in view. Well, one of the things that I said, I think there's a distinction. It's not so clear in this passage. This passage could be could be used in that sense, but I think to be consistent in uh, the book of Romans, and it makes more sense in some other passages, it's a little bit clearer, and I think it helps us to better understand uh, what's going on in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you make a distinction between the word for salvation and the word justification, and the distinction that I make, I think the word soteriology or so, uh, so where we get the word soteriology, soteria or sozo is the verb form. I think Paul is consistent. And in this context, think of salvation in its broadest sense. Paul is praying for the totality of salvation that would include, and there are some usages in the book of Romans, in a temporal, even physical sense. And I think there are some examples of that in the book of Romans where it is very specific. And I think Paul is anticipating a physical deliverance from A.D. 70. 
And I mentioned that here's another occasion. And by the way, the word salvation in the Greek text is translated salvation doesn't occur very frequently in the book of Romans. When Paul is talking about the salvation relating to heaven and earth, when he's talking about the salvation relating to entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ, an initial relationship, he uses the word justification. Remember, we looked at that in chapters 1 through 8. He spent lots of time in that. When he uses the word for salvation, I think he's using it in its broadest sense in this context. That would include not only that initial trust and belief in Jesus Christ, but that ongoing aspect as well. But specifically and particularly in terms of Israel, I think he's looking at it in terms of physical deliverance from 70 AD and even beyond in terms of physical deliverance in the future tribulation period. Does that make sense? Now, I'll come back to that and we'll look at it in more detail. But let's move on. Uh, Nate, how do you take the verb? Do you, you take that word in this kind of particular sense different from justification in the book of Romans? Oh boy, you're opening up the can of worms here. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I, there's, I don't want to take too much time from teaching, would say a lot, but I, I, w- I would say that I, I agree with, um, what you just said in particular, that the word salvation, so, uh, the verb form to say that, uh, just in general, there are words that we often as evangelicals or whatnot, assume that they're talking about deliverance from, from hell, going to heaven, having eternal life, and things like that. And that's, and with these words, you always have to look in the context because that's not always the case and that's often not the case. And so it's always good to look at the context to see what kind of salvation, what is it from, what is it, salvation from what and to what. And in the case of Romans, I, I would agree that it is always being more nuanced use of the word than what we often think or assume. And so I would agree that, um, that you, uh, some distinctions that, uh, that it seems like he does differentiate justification and salvation and in particular in, in chapter five, it's very clear. I think in chapter 10, you'll see that as well. Um, now, would Paul say that justification isn't a form of salvation? No, he wouldn't say that. He would say that just form of salvation more nuanced and that in, in several passages since a deliverance from God's wrath and, and often that is, um, a physical here and now, uh, kind of lines up well with uh, sanctification, this life, living free from the from the power of sin in our lives, living a life that, that is God. But um, so yeah, and in and you mentioned uh, eighty seventy destruction of Israel. That would be an example of God's wrath. So that, but uh, yeah, I agree with every you comment there, and that there is subtleties and different nuances. Good. I wasn't too much. I Good. could say more, but I'm, yep. And we'll come back to that because it's going to occur again in chapter ten, and I think it's a little bit more pertinent in another passage. We've all, if you remember, we've talked about that word. In fact, when we got to it, I think chapter five, maybe even earlier, even chapter one, I made the distinction that word. And like Nate pointed out, 
Most believers, and if I'm speaking to a Baptist audience, almost every Baptist exclusively, every time the word soteria or sozo occurs, translated salvation, they immediately think in terms of initial trusting in Jesus Christ and salvation of sin, deliverance from hell. But... If you count the number of times, remember what's a noun for the verb usage, half of the usages of that word is translated salvation. They immediately think in terms of initial trusting in Jesus Christ and salvation from the penalty of sin, deliverance from uh, hell. But... If you count the number of times, I'm trying to remember whether it's a noun usage or the verb usage, half of the usages of that word that is translated salvation or to be saved, half of the usages refers to present salvation from the power and daily deliverance from power of sin. For example, the Philippians 2 passage, work out your salvation. Do you work out your salvation? Is salvation on the basis of works? Well, justification is not on the basis of works, but there is a sense in which you work out your soteria. You work it out moment by moment, day by day, in a present tense sense. So just a reminder of some of the things that we've talked about. So chapter 10, verse 1, Paul's prayer is for their, I think, big picture salvation. And then verses 2 through 3, the perfection of God is not known by the Jews. Ray? Yes. Uh, one question, uh, since you've been, you mentioned 70 in this context, uh, have a different Romans was written. Than Ryrie, because I think Ryrie thought it was written. Uh, no, Paul died before 70 A.D. So yeah, I, it, on the the view that I hold to is that he wrote Romans uh, at the end of the third missionary journey, which would be right around that time frame. Yes, I would agree. With, what, time? Uh, what Ryrie says, 58, somewhere in there. Certainly before, know. certainly before 70 A.D. Well, I don't understand why, why you said that he had 78. Well, he didn't, he didn't know the date, but he probably saw, remember he was, he was martyred during the Nero persecution and he was seeing his fellow Jewish people cast out of Rome and I think he anticipated a, a growing intensity and a a coming, maybe even judgment. I don't know. You know, he was a prophet, but I don't know if he knew specifically 70 AD. Does that clarify it for you? Okay. And he goes on, for I testify about them, there's the them again, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God. Very interesting. In fact, he begins very complimentary. It's good to have a zeal for God. There's nothing wrong. In fact, we should all have a zeal for God, a zealousness for what we believe and for the Lord. And I think there's a lot of apathy and a lot of just casualness in the body of Christ. Very few believers have a zeal for God. So this is commendable. Commendable. This is something that I think Paul is appealing to the Jewish contingent and 
emphasizing the, the most positive aspect. And in that, unfortunately, that zeal is misdirected. And one of the first things that he talks about here is a the Jewish response. And it's one of zeal. And it can be a good thing. It can be a bad thing. If it's misdirected, it is not a good thing. And that's what's in view here. And we have lots of examples. In fact, Paul uses himself. And if somebody would want to look up one of these or somebody, another one of these and read these, we have an example of Paul using himself full of zeal, but it's a misdirected zeal. So Paul testifying, in other words, he is eyewitness of his own life and fellow Jews around him. He says, I testify to this. This is my experience. I'm an eyewitness concerning these. Does anyone have Galatians 1, first of all? You want to read it? 1, 13 and 14. Don't be shy. Somebody else look up. Philippi- Go ahead. Somebody get Philippians 3. You got it? Is that uh, Katie? Yes. This is Paul basically giving his testimony in Galatians 1, 13 and 14. Go ahead. Go ahead. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God. Intensely. Trying to destroy it. Intensely persecuted. Go ahead. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Okay, there's extreme zealousness. And then he goes on and he will uh, basically testify in Galatians that it is a misdirected zeal. Philippians 3 is very similar. You got that one, uh, looks like Mary Lee. So I myself have reason for confidence also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence of flesh, I have more. Circumcised the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal and persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, the law, blameless. Okay, as to zeal, to the extent that he murdered believers. That is extreme zeal. This is in Paul, and he observed it. In fact, he says, even more than his fellow Jews. He was more zealous than the zealousness of uh, brothers in Judaism, so zealous that he would uh, murder Believers, We won't read, but you can jot down Acts 26, 5 through 11, where Paul again is giving an account of his conversion to an unbeliever. And one of his defenses is his zealousness for Judaism, Acts 26. If you want another passage, he does something similar in Acts 22. So currently you see athletes with lots of zeal. It's kind of neutral, can be good. But you can also see some of the cults, like Jehovah's Witnesses, they're zealous for what they believe. But if it's a cult, then it's always a misdirected zeal. And this is what Paul is getting at in uh, Acts chapter 10 concerning the nation of Israel. They're zealous, and there's lots of examples. But it's misdirected because it's not according in accordance with knowledge. Now, the acquiring of knowledge and the seeking of knowledge and the reading of the scriptures was very common. In fact, 
Young Jewish boys were encouraged to memorize scriptures. They were taught the word. They were encouraged along the lines of memorization. In fact, many Jewish people in history have memorized, for example, the entire Pentateuch in the Hebrew text. And there's people alive today that have done that, Jewish people. And in Israel, we saw kind of some examples of that. I don't know if you remembered, but at the Wailing Wall, here's the Wailing Wall, and I use this photograph. By the way, I think that's Pat and Joseph there, foreground there. But notice that that uh, opening, this is all at the Wailing Wall. Do you see the, where the arrow is pointing? We didn't go in. I've gone in on uh, other visits to Israel. If you go in inside, you're going to find Jews sitting down, reading, usually the Hebrew text. They'll bring out some of the scrolls in some of these big cabinets. Some of them they're not permitted because they're so sacred and they're separate. But you see them in these little rooms off the, the main part there. And some of them will be reading and you'll even hear them as they read the text. So the emphasis is the reading and the studying and the acquiring of understanding and the knowledge. But, unfortunately, it's not in accordance with epigenosis, is the Greek word. In accordance with knowledge. It's superficial knowledge. It is head knowledge. It is intellectual knowledge. But it's not the... The deeper, in other words, the more comprehensive, the, the spiritual understanding. And maybe next time we can look up some of these passages where one of the main criticisms of Christ in the first century, and I've got a list of a few of the clearest passages there. We won't look them up for the sake of time. But Matthew 22, 29, Luke 19, 44. Jesus basically is exposing the leaders of Judaism in each of these passages in terms of their misunderstanding or lack of understanding in terms of the full implications or the full teaching of many passages of the Old Testament. And that's the failure that Paul is bringing out amongst his fellow Jews. And this is, this is devastating. Because in verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness, they missed it in all of the learning, in all of the studying, in all of the thought processes that the, the Jewish people went through. And you see religious people today, they don't have an insight in the gospel. They don't have an understanding. They, they are darkened. They, they don't see the truth behind the words. Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. Now, I intended to talk a little bit more about this righteousness, mainly because last time there wasn't some clarity there. But uh, we'll come back and we'll take a look at that next time. Let me just skip ahead here. One of the principles that we have in this context here is another principle. Not only did Israel fail in their pursuit of righteousness, but in terms of their response, their human responsibility, they failed to know the perfections of God. And the one that is in view in this passage is the righteousness of God. So we'll talk about that next time. They did not know the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, their own self-righteousness. They did not 
subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And that was one of the main failures. So why don't we stop in verse 3, and that's what we'll pick up next time. Kind of a closing thought, and would somebody care to close for us? Knowing God's principles, we can apply, knowing God's principles determines eternal realities. And in this context, in terms of the nation of Israel, has effects. Uh, Jim, you got your microphone open, or are you going to close for us? Yes, I'd like to. Yes, our Father, uh, we do pray that uh, uh, that we will pursue and understand uh, knowledge that leads to intimacy in our relationship with you, uh, that leads to the enjoyment of the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, in particular what comes to mind in the uh, circumstances that we are now experiencing uh, is joy uh, that uh, exists uh, even apart from the circumstances themselves and in the circumstances. So, Lord, help us grow in our uh, intimacy, uh, in our relationship with you, that our faith will be strong, and that the way we live will glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank Amen. you. Thank you all. Any closing goodbyes? Thanks, Ray. Goodbye. Bye, Steve. Bye. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Have a great weekend, everyone. Thanks. Bye. Happy Father's Day.